0: This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our real-time history videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series, 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45, on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash real-time history podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo from the Great War Channel podcast. Today with a bit of a special guest and special episode for you. Some of you might already know, some of you don't. Uh, We are currently running a Kickstarter campaign to crowdfund a new documentary project of ours, which is called Rhineland 45, um, a documentary about the Rhineland campaign at the end of World War II. Um, It's a cool project. Uh, We already reached our minimum funding goal. So so thanks to all of you out there who supported us. Um, It's a very much overlooked campaign, kind of like in the um, February, March, 1945, one of the largest uh, battles on German soil, certainly for the Western Front. Um, And we think it's going to be a very interesting subject to study. So through our crowdfunding campaign, we get in touch with Damod Rooney, who is a historian and a psychologist at the same time, kind of a bit, bit of both, who uh, specializes in the historical psychological analysis of tactical, of tactics, tactical combat, and is trying to evaluate uh, the impact of certain things on morale or uh, the surrender of enemy soldiers. And this is a, as you would say, rabbit hole to dive into, a very complex topic. Um, but we figured um, his insights and his knowledge would be interesting, um, not just for those of you out there who are interested in the Rhineland campaign, because Damod is currently uh, writing his thesis on Operation Veritable, on the first day of Operation Veritable. But we figured this is something that is generally interesting to all of you out there, and we are also talking a bit about um, how to apply this to the Western Front Battles, for example, uh, and what war one that is. So without further ado, through the magic of audio editing, you will hear the interview now, which I recorded earlier. If you are interested in supporting Ryan 45, you can go to realtimehistory.net slash um, Ryan The link will also be in the show notes. Uh, Same with the links to Dermot's book. And so without further ado, enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone. This is Flo. And today we have a very special guest on the Great War Channel podcast. His name is Dermot Rooney, and he is part historian and part psychologist. And the intersection of both of these fields of study is what we're interested in today. Hi, Dermot. How are you doing?
1: Hi, Flo. I'm fine. Thanks. Yourself?
0: Very, very good on this wonderful fall afternoon in Berlin so Demut, how does one become interested in the intersection of psychology and history or military history specifically
1: uh, oh well uh, i uh, I did a degree in psychology and i uh, also um, uh, was a, a soldier in the reserve the army reserve. Uh, the University Officer Training Corps, kind of like the scouts, but with guns. Um, and uh, I did that for a few years. And then I found out there was um, the Army had its own corps of psychologists that it employed, and I went to work for them. Um, and the first project I picked up was called uh, Human Factors Input to Operational Analysis. And that is, operational analysis is the thing that says, you know, the mathematical support to defence decision. And they have real problems with representing the human factor, you know, fear, morale, that kind of thing. Um, And so uh, I got a project to do support to that. Um, And that was um, 25 years ago. And kind of, I'm I'm still doing it.
0: Yeah. uh, It sounds so simple and elegant uh, when you say that, that they have, you know, of course, have problems to factor in the, or to quantify the human factor. But... You know, the more I think about it, since we started talking to each other, the more complicated this seems to me. Because, like, how do you, how did you even start coming up with like some kind of approach to, you know, evaluate this kind of question? Like, what is the human factor, and how do you even like approach studying it?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a common question. It, it keeps coming up pretty much every five or ten years. Um, uh, Defense ministries, Department of Defense in the U.S. or MOD in UK, or whatever acronym you have in Germany, um, goes, oh, we we haven't considered the human factor of combat. We've got to we've got to represent that in some way, and so let's have a look at doing it. And we started with, um, like a lot of people do, um, with trying to list all the possible contributing factors, and we made a giant list of about eighty things. Uh, you know esprit de core, logistics, whether your boots fit, um, all kinds of nitty-gritty stuff. Um, there was physiological bits in there, there were psychological bits in there, neurological bits, and then quite a big chunk of military history. Um, and uh, then when you've done that for a little while, you'll realise most of these things you just can't measure and you can't represent. And even if you could, you can't do much about them. Um, and these factors they kind of drop into three big clumps there's the strategic level stuff which is um basically what makes you a soldier you know um the the thing that's decided years before it might be genetics it might be culture it might be training it's the thing that people always talk about you know uh, the vermouth were, were 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 rock solid and um, the british less so and and other countries a little bit further down the pecking order of of how good you are at fighting uh, that kind of thing, big level strategic stuff. And everybody knows about it, but it's difficult to measure. So there's guys like uh, David Rowland in the UK and Trevor Dupuy in the US try to measure these nationality characteristics, try to peck, put a number on how good different nations were at fighting. Um, and then a little bit lower down, the next level people think about is the operational level, the things that happen in the the weeks or months, or even just the days before a particular battle. Um, so, if you've been defeated a lot, if a lot of your friends have been killed, if you've got combat exhaustion, if you've not eaten, you've not slept, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then this seems to drag you down. But if you've, um, I think uh, Lord Moran called it the uh, the bank of courage, and it gets worn away. But if you've got good leadership and you've got Good logistics, and you get the mail from home, and you're well fed, and you feel like your boss looks after you. Then this buoys you all. So that operational level, that's all quite well understood, but it's not. Um, uh, it's 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 very difficult to measure. Um, you know, the data doesn't sit there. And then right at the bottom, the, the thing that that we thought was going to be the most difficult, but surprisingly isn't, um, was is the tactical level, and this is not so much. Um, what you are or how you feel when you start a battle or how committed you are it's what the enemy do to you to make you run hide and surrender so i do um tactical psychology which is uh, which is rather um titled um the art and science of making soldiers run hide and surrender um the art is what soldiers do and what soldiers have been doing for eternity as far as we can tell um uh, suppressive fire and flanking attacks are mentioned by um, uh, Xenophon and Anabasis. Um, there's all, all the way through history, you see these little glimpses of how these effects kind of work. Um, and soldiers do it, but they kind of only learn through experience. It's not taught formally um, and it's not been written down very well. But, um, uh, and so. The science bit, and the science is in like air quotes because um, you know it's very rough and ready. We have to use bits of military history, and bits of psychology, and bits of operational research and soldier experience, and we have to kind of meld those all together. And we use a, a kind of a, a triangulation process to point at you know how big this effect is. Um, and uh, and so that's that bit. We can we can measure these things. So we can measure effects like. Um, What happens when you coordinate fire better? And what happens when you outflank the enemy? And what happens when you get close to the enemy? They're the big three.
0: Right. That was already fascinating. And I think we've covered the psychological part pretty well. And you already now in the end hinted a bit at the historical side of this thing. So how do you... And it seems to me that this is very much like a field of study that is predetermined to always look at the events once they have happened and then see if you can draw any conclusions for future battles. But you always have to work with like the impressions and the recordings uh, that the soldiers leave after the battle have happened, right?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, in the UK, and we've got a long tradition of historical analysis, um, and that's not how historic, it, it, the operational research dies. Uh, it's, it's applying statistics to historical data. And so you get a large sample of battles. You say, put them in clumps. This lot did X. This lot did Y. This lot had tanks. This lot fought at night. This was in a wood. And they've done all sorts of, of really funky stuff about anti-armour warfare and heroism. It stretches right back the, that's been, The research on that's been going on for oh, 40 years, 50 years maybe. Um, and Some of the stuff I do, so the stuff you're doing on Veritable, for example, um, one of the key studies on artillery suppression, about how many artillery rounds you put on a position in order to get the enemy to be ineffective, because it doesn't really kill them, it just makes them take cover, um, is uh, a study by Michael Swan that was part of Operation Veritable, the first, the first battle in the Rhineland campaign um and that data is still used today it's It's still trapped in computers that decide how much fire you're supposed to put onto a position before you attack it
0: is there particular- is there- partic- something particularly valuable about this specific data set, or why isn't for example a newer battle or more recent battle used
1: well uh, it, it's been it's been updated and it's been tweaked, and people have put new things in it but the the joy of um, the swan report the, the report on the first day of veritable is that um, it, surprisingly, soldiers aren't, are not a bit busy when they're having a fight and they don't record how many rounds they fire onto a position and they don't record what size of unit they attacked, and they don't record how many prisoners they took or how many casualties they took particularly well. Um, but what Swan did is he got 12 attacks from Veritable and four attacks from Op Clipper, the fighting around Geelenkirchen, sorry if I to pronounce that. that, um, and uh, and he put them together in a big graph, and so that goes shows a kind of a linear relationship, a strong line between the number of rounds you fire on a position and the number of people who surrender when you get there.
0: But that straight line and how steep it is, or uh, how like uh, the the correlation between these things, can you really draw such a straight line? <laughs> you can try.
1: <laughs> so part of my work, part of my work is about correcting the error in that straight line. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to. One of the little bits I'm trying to do now is trying to, to sort out that. So there was, there were some problems with the source data. Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, do, I won't dig that rabbit hole now. But yes, the, the line is tricky, but it's It's one of the few lines that we've got.
0: Okay. Yeah, uh, and uh, much as you would do in like the scientific process is, of course, you take something like a, a scientific result and then you chip away at it as uh, um, for as long as uh, until you can prove that actually it's incorrect and you have a better understanding of it now. Yeah.
1: So uh, yeah, I've, I've I've tried to disprove that theory and I think I have, but uh, it's it's a bit up in the air at the moment. But it's it's it undecided.
0: Okay. Um, could you give us a bit, uh, maybe something that's in your hand, Maybe you have a, a, a concrete um, example of like a, a data point that is interesting to you. Maybe like uh, something that a soldier has written down, or something that he left in the aftermath of the battle. That, for you personally, for your work, is interesting.
1: Oh, the the, the one of my favourites is um, is uh, Sidney Jerry, a, a, a wonderful man. Uh, uh, died died about this time last year, I think. Um, um, and and uh, so he fought. He fought in Operation Veritable. Uh, he was in the. I always get the battalions mixed up. I think it was the Seventh uh, Shropshire Light Infantry. Somebody's going to correct me. Uh, and he was in command of 18 Platoon, and he wrote the book 18 Platoon afterwards. And it was all about how to be a platoon commander. He was in a unique position because. He pretty much stayed a platoon commander from Normandy until the end of the war um, and stayed in touch with all his soldiers. And, and in the 80s, I think it was, they got together and, and wrote a book about it. Um, and he's got loads of little incidents. There's a, there's a, a fight around uh, Howe, uh, Bedburg near Claver. Uh, and uh, then he outflanked, his platoon outflanked, a well, kind of a reduced company, big platoon. whatever you call it? Um, uh, gang of uh, a gang of uh, German paratroopers. Um, killed a few of them, uh, captured a load of them. And when he did it, this this little thing was he kind of he kind of realized he he, he found this big gang of you know enemy troops there. And um, a paratrooper jumped out of a bush, emptied a Schmeiser at him. And his perception of that, he said. Um, I couldn't hear the rounds firing, but I could see the shells cases ejecting in slow motion at the side of his machine pistol, and um, and not one of them hit me. You know, one of the rounds smacked into the ground in front of him. One of them stuck into his lapel, and one of them unfortunately uh, uh, killed his corporal behind him. And then the bloke just shut his gun down and surrendered, um, and he captured his platoon by doing a quick outflanking move. There, captured more german paratroopers in that one action than a whole brigade did uh, a day later
0: and and crucially crucially he captured more enemies than were in his own unit at that point
1: yeah so he would have had about well he might have had 28 30 guys um the platoons the platoons were quite full there but he he they captured 57 guys and i, I he's a bit he didn't Get down and count how many is men killed.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. But it, it seems to me that uh, even in like a one to one situation, if like the equal amount of people are on both sides, then something like a surrender would already be out of the question.
1: Generally speaking, if um, generally speaking, um, <laughs> if outflanked, uh, people are two or three times more likely to surrender. So if you do a frontal attack, you you'll get ten guys surrender. You do a flanking attack on the same size unit, you'll get 20, 30 guys surrender um, on average. But usually, if you do a frontal attack, you lose. You just get shot to pieces.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean that that seems like a like a truism, like an obvious thing to say. But of yeah. course, it's interesting if when you find these kind of recordings where it actually also um, states
1: one of the problems with tactical psychology is um, is because it's tactics and it's psychology. Um, I've only ever met two men who didn't think they were experts on fighting. And uh, every human thinks they're an expert on psychology. <laughs> so that's a little, always a little bit of a problem to get past. But, uh, but then the problem with psychology, you're a surveyor on the, on the news that uh, you know, uh, depressed people aren't very happy or um, your kids can't sleep if they play computer games too late at night, that kind of thing. And you go, well, that, that, that's obvious, isn't it? That's rubbish. You know what, who, needs to, who needs to know that? The thing is, if you can count it, so everybody kind of knows there's some morale effect of being outflanked uh, or morale effect, uh, some psychological effect from being outflanked, but um, uh, nobody's ever measured it before. And if you don't measure it, so because I'm a geek and I, I sometimes work for the Ministry of Defence, we need to measure that stuff so we can use it to inform doctrine and training and, and equipment procurement. That can. And we need numbers for that.
0: Yeah, so the the one example we just talked about uh, on a, you know, tactical scale is like very close quarters kind of fighting. I mean, relatively speaking, still might be like a farm or farmstead, you know, some bigger distances. But before that, we actually talked about artillery, you know, which has a huge, huge impact it would seem. Like, again, the... Why amateur, the amateur psychologist in me would say, like, of course, artillery has a huge effect. But uh, have you actually like found out anything about the, you know, the like effect on morale uh, an artillery barrage can have? So
1: the, the best idea we have now, and I'm always open for people to chip in with this one. So if you can track me down and email me, just and, and tell me I'm wrong. That's great. Um, uh, but uh, back in the day, when it was bows and arrows. Suppressive fire was seen by the, the fire group and the assault group. You could see the effect. You could see the effect on the enemy. You knew where you were shooting. You knew you weren't, you weren't shooting at your own mate. Um, and you could see this morale effect. You didn't kind of get to teach it. It didn't get written in books because it was, it was the kind of thing that soldiers, ser- sergeants do and corporals do. And, you know, it's not the, the big, exciting thing that, that gets written into books very often. Um, and so, but you could see suppressive effect. Then along comes the Great War. And what happens there is that the the fire and the assault groups are separated by miles, and they have real trouble. A lot of the trouble in the first half of the First World War is, you know, getting over that open ground, getting artillery to suppress. And um, they didn't have a language for it. Um, psychology had, you know, only been invented in like eighteen seventy, that kind of thing. Um, and so, first off, artillerymen were became divorced from this, the, the assault battle. They didn't see this psychological effect that their arm really does, and that's where their big effect is, and thought it was all about destruction. They'd go along after a battle, and they'd say, you know, all oh, there's dead people everywhere. Well done, haven't we been good? And somebody noticed that there's an awful lot of people getting captured on a successful assault. And so there was, like, three competing theories there. Um, and they all, they all seem to work a bit, but um, the big one comes at the end. Um, and I may be biased here. So um, the first one that was, it, it erodes will. It's like that, uh, you know, that leaky bucket, that, um, um, oh, uh, Lord Moran's Anatomy of Courage thing. You know, you erode will. You, you, you pound you pound the enemy position for days,
0: a week. And then... That's some, Yeah, that's something that we also see a lot in the literature, for example. That's like very present in all quite on the Western Front you know, the like extremely long barrages, opening barrages and everything. And like uh, uh, Remark uh, describes over pages, how they basically turn into like animals.
1: So uh, that bit, so what happens there is this kind of, the conception is, or the conception was during the great war on the British side. I'll I'll put my, I'll put my thing in big brackets there. um, Was that uh, it was, it was eroding will. So it would, Because, you know, your mates die, because your food doesn't get through, you don't get any mail, you can't sleep, there's this banging, banging. You're in constant fear. That makes you not want to fight. It makes you, you know, mardy, grumpy and incompetent. Um, And that's what's happened. So that was the big one at first. But then they started bringing in um, uh, moving barrages, so like a wall of fire that, that goes on in front of the troops. And they'd find that if they did a, a short, sharp fire plan and then dashed onto the position, they'd capture a lot more people. And so there it was, it was about um, shocking the enemy. It was, you know, they were, you know, you, you get guys out of trenches who hadn't got a clue what was going on, were completely bewildered, uh, frightened, tearful, all that kind of thing, yeah. Um, just had their hands in the air, were you know, catatonic almost with, with the, the effect. Um, and so you've got the erosion, then you've got the shock, but then the next one was that it was just kind of common sense. Um, that when artillery is falling in any position, the place you want to be is in a hole in the ground with a roof on it. You know, you want to be in a cellar, you want to be in a building, you want to be uh, away from those splinters. If you're in a building, you're away from the windows. That can, because that's, and you, there's nothing for you to shoot back. Your best survival move is to stay undercover. The trick is, obviously, which was with the constant balance through the great War, as far as I can tell, was to work out when that fire stopped and it was safe to come up. Um, and so then you get onto your position you you know once you're being assaulted, once the assaults coming in, the enemy are advancing. your best survival technique, or certainly for your group or your chances of winning are much better if you get up and you start firing back um, and so the, the the rolling, creeping, walking, leaping barrage of various names for it was just one technique to get the infantry onto the position close behind the barrage. So quite often we get guys 70 metres behind the barrage um, uh, whereas, you know, if you go on a training exercise today the maximum safe distance is um, about 3 million kilometres. You know, no, the, the safety rules won't let you practice that with live ammunition. Um, so um, So, yeah, so that's and that seems to have the biggest effect it's this it's this making this decision and so later on part of what would the reason the veritable barrage was so successful was that um, it, it broke up the fire plant so there was false lifts and that, that, I believe those happened quite a lot in the, the Great War too but uh, it had a lot of those and lots of different ammunition types and a great big pepper pot so there was people firing all kinds of stuff so three million um uh 303 rounds got fired um uh tens of thousands of 40 mil bofors rounds and you know everything up to you know 240 mil.
0: yeah uh, Jesse's uh, Je- Jesse's grandfather uh, was part of that uh, pepperpot actually uh, he was in a, a in a universal carrier uh and they fired indirect machine gun fire really uh on really? the positions as well yeah
1: oh brilliant Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll pester you about
0: that later then yeah yeah absolutely and uh, and as, if I remember correctly like we've seen that like the Canadian machine gun Corps did that on the Western front uh, as well like the you know not just using like the big the the, the huge calibers for indirect fire uh, but like creating kind of like these forbid like the um prevent enemy mo- movement by covering in an area in machine gun fire indirect machine gun fire yeah
1: so the th- th- the standard one is, you know, to just hose down a a road junction. So I think it's about the range was something like four and a half K that you could get with a Vickers and, you know, opening day of veritable 188 Vickers just opened up and started spraying these designated zones.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, that seems pretty massive. And Again, all these theories uh, in my mind when I'm listening to, you, you know, they all kind of make a, make a bit of sense, but I can also always think of like um they always they they all seem to rely on a certain standard model for the behavior of the enemy. But, you know, that's probably a lot dependent on a lot of other fa- of the whole range of factors that you mentioned in the beginning.
1: Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, I mean, the thing is we can't the reason I focus on tactical psychology, is I accept that there's, there's difference in the quality of troops. There are some of them who are more committed to a cause for whatever reason, um, and some who aren't. Um, but if you're a platoon commander or a company commander or a battalion commander and you're going in to launch an attack, you have no ability to change magically the morale or commitment of your own troops or the enemy. You don't get to pick. You, all you've got, you don't have to, you know, changing the weapon mix is perhaps within your grasp, but the tactics—that—that's your job. That's what you can do something about. And so that's why, uh, that's why most soldiers seem to like it. <laughs> some of the, some of them disagree, and I do get some chest pokings.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that seems to me, make sense to me as well. Um, and I mean, I think the the value in studying this on a tactical level is, of course. Uh, the kind of perspective that gets lost a lot in our like when we even at the Great War or in other media productions when we look at the war and uh, it's also uh, you know other YouTube channels do this uh, too which uh, I call the armchair general syndrome it's like you know we we see the we see the map and then you know maybe the smallest unit you see on it is a division uh, uh, and then you see the numbers walking around and then you say like like, You scratch your chin and say, like, "Surely they should have just moved uh, in that direction, and the the, the turn of history would have been stopped."
1: Well, the the, the British Army rents a big piece of Canada, um, uh, called uh, uh, Suffield uh, CFB Suffield, but we know it as Batters, the British Army training unit Suffield, and that's got. And I I I spent ten years looking at exercises there, and uh, there's a big God screen in exercise control, and you can see everything's got a GPS tracker on it. It's on this big screen. And you get the guy who makes the tea, and you get the, the, you know, the sad, civvy analyst like me, who couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag, stood there looking at the screen going, yes, surely he should have gone left flanking there, and uh, you know thinking, oh, that, that, that colonel, that brigadier, he's useless. <laughs> if only I was there doing that, and which is, you know, uh, it's a constant thing. It's like a bit like football, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, o- only with uh, more severe injuries than just concussions. Alright, so I'm definitely, since we started talking, extremely interested in this uh, topic because I think, you know, for me as a civilian and as someone who, whose job it is to accurately portray like how combat or war happened in our history, uh, I think this gives me some insight to um, at least figure, maybe figure out in the future how we could you know, do a better job in, you know, bringing in the human factor.
1: So, I mean, we're trying to do it now through, I'm, 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 I'm looking. So my thesis, PhD thesis, I'm trying to get, um, get through <laughs> is, um, uh, tactical psychology in operation veritable, which is why I contacted you guys.
0: Yeah. That's that's how we started talking to you. John.
1: You know, you're doing, you're doing veritable. I'm doing veritable. Hey, ho, lovely. Um, and uh I'm trying to get better historical data, so previously, what we did was all that stuff that I was talking about before the uh the the old historical analysis what they did was they employed historians to collect all this data and put it into big packets and this is uh this is the fight for starfish wood Day. that's one of the battles in within a vote one of the little tiny ones um and that's um Oh, remind me, I'll tell you about flamethrower tanks in a minute. But well, they've captured all this, all the details from all the diaries and put it all together. And they've gone for the ones that are really well described. So my work a few years ago was taking all that and looking at the you know, the big effects like flanking, um, threat stacking, which is combined arms, but there's an argument about what to call it, uh, and proximity. So people fight less when you uh, Mixed threats. When you give them uh, direct fire and indirect fire to worry about, so you get more people surrender there.
0: Or different different uh, we- kinds of weapons, uh, like maybe like a tank and infantry and something in the air.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, let's do that one. So this the, the the key battle. Well, it's not a key battle.
0: For you, it's a key battle.
1: It, it's it's an interesting battle that illustrates the point quite well. Yeah. Is the battle for outpost snipe, which is uh, the kind of halfway point at the Battle of Alamein, if I get it correctly. So as, as a psychologist who essentially raids history for data, um, and in this case, somebody else had done all the historical analysis for me. They got all the data, and, and there it was in this sack for me. So um, what happened the week before, I don't care, um, and I don't know. Um, and uh, oh, uh, King's Royal Rifle Corps, I think it was one King's Royal Rifle Corps, were kind of sent out accidentally ahead of everybody else, on purpose ahead of everybody else, but accidentally in the middle of the kind of uh, the Africa Corps uh, forming up area. And they you know, the battalion got in a nice little circle with its anti-tank guns and sat there. Um, and in the morning, uh, uh, the Italians and the Germans realized and, and, and attacked as best they could. But they attacked in generally, there are exceptions, but generally a single unit entities so a tank troop company squadron whatever you want to call it would attack uh, an infantry unit would attack there would be some artillery or mortar fire then another single arm would attack and so they were able to the, the theory is that they were and when you when you stack it up when you get a lot of these and stack them up and do the sums it seems to work um, was that because they were only faced with one threat at a time They were able to work out what to do. So if you say you're a a machine gunner and you're attacked by tanks, then what your job is to do is to shoot the tank. You're not going to kill the tank, but you're going to get the crew to close down. You're going to get them, you're going to distract them with rounds bouncing off. You know, you might break antenna or crack a vision block or something like that, but you're not really going to do anything, probably, Uh, nothing physical. But you're getting them to do their job less well, so that your anti-tank guns have an easier time shooting that tank. So back to being the machine gunner, your job is really quite easy. It's a uh, it's it's in drill. You've been taught what to do. Um, if you're attacked by infantry, it's a no-brainer. You shoot the infantry. That's your job. You might not now. In each case, you might be too scared to do it. You might not want to do it. You might. There might be any other reasons why you don't do it. But if on top of those reasons, you can't work out whether you should be shooting the infantry or the tanks first, that creates this level of confusion. Um, uh, The easiest way into that is a book by Daniel Kahneman. Uh, It's not a war book. It's a psychology book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow. So we have these automatic responses, these drilled things or these innate things that it's easy to do. But when you've got to make a decision, you kind of opt out of that. All your brain power goes to uh, do I do a or B A or B a or B, a or B? And, um, uh, and the result is indecision and inaction. So what we see there is that when you stack up enough battles, if infantry and artillery or artillery and armor are closely coordinated, or even if it's machine guns and rifle grenades are well coordinated you get a lot more people surrendering. So two or three times more people surrendering when you get that stacked up right. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, Very somewhat unrelated from that, but this reminds me of when I play like, uh, you know, board games that try to abstract battle. You always, at some, you know, depending on the complexity at some point, I usually suffer from something that's called and that I call analysis paralysis. Yeah. So, you know, you're, over, you're overanalyzing uh, things and that's why I like, personally, I like games that have like a narrower decision space, basically. Yeah. So only give me like three, maybe four relatively easy to think about decisions. And then that creates like a kind of flow and fun for me personally. But I also know other people that, you know, are quite the opposite. But on an abstract level, this seems like this paralysis of having too many options uh, it, it seems very real, and I could imagine that in like if you have the noise of battle and all kinds of other factors in there, uh, it only gets.
1: So well, one of the uh, the the constant things that we bang on about is um, uh, the tendency. So in in Afghanistan, soldiers were like, um, "Do you have Bukkaroos in Germany?" What you've got. Buckaroo, the game, like a plastic horse, and you you stack things on it. You put more and more buckets and ropes and stuff, and eventually, it, it's a kid's game.
0: I th- we might we might have some, or something similar. So, and
1: it buys these things anyway. So anyway, in Afghanistan, soldiers were like Buckaroo. They had they had um, a huge plates body armor, like sixteen kilos body armor in some cases, um, they've got a very complicated weapon. They've got a complicated site. They've got a complicated radio, sometimes two. They might be carrying a little computer. They've got a gadget that jams... um, IEDs? uh, That's the chat. You're uh, there (laughs) with the IEDs. Well done. Um, And they've got all this stuff that they have to jangle and dangle about. So, A, they're really tired. But, B, they're kind of overloaded. And it's the same in headquarters we get previously. So, you you would have, um, oh, let's see. Who would you have? Who would you have? You'd have Napoleon. And he'd look over and he'd go, there's a big gang of Prussians there. Do you know what? Let's go. Let's leave now. And he'd he'd see that and he'd make his decision. You know? The the guard have recoiled. I can see that. But what you get now is you get 250 emails. uh, The phone's ringing all the time and you have to make a decision. And, And it's about designing the workspace around the way people's brains work. Rather than going, Do you know what, this guy really needs more information in order to make this decision. Yeah,
0: yeah that seems uh, something that's not only applicable to uh, to military uh, to the military, but uh, yeah,
1: I, I'm the worst for it. I, I'm terrible.
0: All right, Damon. This was uh, really fun, and uh, I'm, as I said, super interested in it. Um, you know, we we will try our best to uh, get some of your insight into our coverage of veritable. Uh, for around 45, um, if some of our viewers are interested to read a bit about this topic,
1: is it time to plug my book?
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you feel free to okay. plug your book or any kind of uh, any other text you would recommend. Oh, any
1: other textbook? Okay, well, the the first one you want to buy, if you can, is uh, is uh, we call it Battle Studies by uh, uh, sorry for the pronunciation by Adon Dupic um, John Charles. Twelve of the names on. To pick. He's the first guy who did this in 1870. Um, it got written um, uh, after some of your friends killed him at, at, at um, you know that Franco-Prussian War that you had. Um, his is the best book. The second best book is uh, is the one that me and my friends wrote called Brains and Bullets. Uh, we use the pseudonym Leo Murray um, because we didn't want to get sacked by the Ministry of Defence. Um, and uh, But that's also released as War Games. And I would buy War Games if you want to buy a book because that's kind of half the price but exactly the same book.
0: is the kind of insider information you only get on our podcast. <laughs> All right, Damon, Um Yeah, I, we will have more to talk about. And, uh, you know, maybe after we've... Um, worked through this a bit and made some decisions that are relevant for our documentary. Maybe we will get you back on the podcast and talk a bit about what we did differently, how we approached this. In the meantime, uh, get your hands on Damon's book, support Rhineland45, because with a bigger budget, we can you know, dive deeper into this kind of like tactical sphere that we've t- talked about. And until then, I would say a lovely afternoon to you and to all our listeners out there.
1: Cheers. Bye.